I, uh, I tend to trust legal court systems generally today, and I have a high view of judges and juries and lawyers. Yes, even lawyers. <laughs> but even though I tend to trust them, and I think they do generally very good work, no one could ever truthfully claim that their legal system is perfect in, in Canada or anywhere. Despite the good intentions, the best intentions for justice, sometimes injustice is done. The worst instances of this injustice, I would think, have to be cases of wrongful convictions or sentences. When someone who is innocent of a crime is found guilty of a crime that they didn't commit, and then they're sentenced to maybe years in prison or worse for those crimes. About a hundred years ago in Spain, two men were convicted of murdering a local shepherd who had just randomly disappeared out of the blue. No one knew where he went. They thought he would be murdered, so they grabbed these two guys, bring them in, try them, they convict them, and these guys spent 15 years in prison when all of a sudden the murder victim, supposed murder victim, was found alive and well and living in a nearby town. Oops. There are actually countless stories like this of people who were wrongfully convicted and they're, they're, thankfully their convictions were overturned. Even from death row. You know, in the United States alone, since 1970, there have been over 150 inmates on death row who were later exonerated and freed. All because some new evidence came up or, or popped up that proved that they were innocent of those charges. In 1985, one example, a man named John Thompson was arrested for robbery and murder. And when he was found guilty, he was sentenced to death in the state of Louisiana. Fourteen years later, so around 1999, a mere couple of weeks before he was scheduled to be executed, new evidence came out that proved that the blood they thought was his at the crime scene was not his, and so John was retried, he was taken off death row, retried, and then the jury only took 35 minutes to, to exonerate him and free him from all charges, to acquit him. So, usually I would say, most, by far the majority of the time, usually the guilty are found guilty. And the not guilty are found not guilty or innocent. But sometimes... In this broken world, the guilty go free, and the innocent are condemned. This was never a truer statement than the day that Jesus Christ was condemned to die. It had to be the severest case of injustice ever. Not only was crucial evidence ignored or dismissed, not only were there not real any valid charges against Jesus, but while other people, like the ones we were just talking about, have been freed from, they've been found innocent years after their conviction, Jesus was actually found innocent before his conviction. And yet, he was still convicted and killed. We'll see the story for ourselves today in Luke 23. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there to Luke 23. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that will be on page 883. 
883. See this story, but we're really above just a historical story. I hope today that we can see Jesus' love for us shine through once more. So let's pray for that, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we open your word and we turn to these pages that we will see your truth once again this morning, I pray for your spirit to be working on us, each one of us here, that our hearts would be open to receive from you, to receive conviction if need be. I pray that you would encourage those who are downtrodden today or hurting. Help us to be amazed once again by your love for us through these words. Work through this today, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were in Luke together, it was over a month ago now, we saw the first segment of Jesus' trial. So after the agony in Gethsemane, after his betrayal and arrest and abandonment and denial, and after Jesus was mocked and beaten and blasphemed in captivity by the temple guards, when morning came at daybreak, Jesus was brought in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, where he would be tried. He'd be questioned and interrogated like a criminal. And like a jury, the Sanhedrin would decide whether or not Jesus was guilty. They didn't really have any real charges against Jesus, so they had to drum some up and get some false witnesses and so on. And then what we saw in Luke is that they attempted to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He never really legally incriminated himself, but he sure did in their eyes. By the end of the trial, Jesus had not only claimed to be the Messiah as Son of God, but he had claimed, he had gone much further, he claimed to be the divine Son of God, worthy of the glory, power, and authority of God alone. And the leaders thought, blasphemy, which was a capital offense in Jewish law. And they concluded the trial by saying this in the last verse of chapter 22. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Thus they decided that Jesus deserved to die. The Jewish leaders had had a bit of a problem. See, they couldn't authorize executions. That wasn't in their eyes. Israel, remember, under Rome's imperial control. So the Sanhedrin only had so much authority, like a, a city council. Okay? They, could, they could legislate you know, garbage and recycling services and libraries and bike lanes and all things like that. But if they, need, if they wanted to carry out anything of real significance, like the death penalty, then they needed Rome's permission. Therefore, we see this in verse 1 in chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of the area, sent from Rome to rule over this part of their empire. And so the Sanhedrin needed his stamp of approval, so they get up all... This is probably a group of like 70 leaders. They get up, haul Jesus across town to Pilate. And when they arrive... You can imagine the scene. They all crowd into the room. They get right to the point. And the whole company of them arose, brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, 
We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, question for you. Does that sound like what they found Jesus guilty of before? No, not at all, right? They said he should die for blasphemy, not insurrection. But think about it. Rome didn't care whether or not someone blasphemed. That was just a Jewish religious religious issue. So to get Rome's approval, the Jews, taking them to Pilate, knew that they had to change the charges a bit. And so, in other words, they had to lie. Look again at the three charges they brought in verse 2. It says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So first, misleading the nation. They thought this was true, but it wasn't. If anything, it was the opposite. Second, forbidding tribute to Caesar. This was an absolute lie, right? Remember what Jesus had said? In fact, he had said the opposite. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Third, claiming to be the Messiah who is king. Now, this wasn't a lie, But they were still taking Jesus' claims out of context. And this is not what they found him guilty of, remember. But this third accusation, that he would be king, it did get Pilate's attention. Someone aspiring to be king? Caesar is king. The last thing Rome needed was a Jewish uprising behind some wannabe revolutionary king. However, if you put yourself in Pilate's shoes, I think he had to be really suspicious here. And he was. Something was up. Because since when did the Jews care about defending Rome against insurrection? They didn't. They wanted Rome to fall. So why would they try to deliver a potential Jewish leader up to Rome? It didn't make any sense. So Pilate knew there had to be some shenanigans going on here. So this big, you can picture the scene, the big mob of leaders accused Pilate, hey, we got this troublemaker that you got to deal with. And Pilate probably raised his eyebrow, confused, like, really? Is that so? And they go, yeah, yeah, here he is. They drag him up forward. And I imagine Pilate must have just stifled a chuckle. Him? Really? He's going to overthrow Rome? He's forbidding tribute to Caesar? Uh, This pitiful, weak, miserable man, he's all bloody, beaten up. So Pilate blurted out a skeptical question in verse 3. And Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Leon Morris says, What the Jews had prepared him to meet, they prepared him to meet a resistance fighter. But one glance at Jesus was enough to show the utter absurdity of such an idea. And it wrenched this incredulous question from the lips. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response is powerful, though. And he answered him, You have said so. 
Now, this is an affirmative. It's like, it is as you say, or you've said it. And I get the impression, though, that Pilate just laughed him off. This is audacious. Because instead of getting nervous about Jesus' claim, he dismisses it. Look in verse 4. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I suspect that Pilate thought Jesus was a lunatic. He was insane to think that he was a king. So Pilate gave his verdict, which actually reveals to us the heart of this passage's message, and that is this, that in midst of accusations of guilt, Jesus was found innocent. In the midst of vicious accusations of guilt, Jesus was emphatically found innocent. Innocent. Look again at what Pilate decided. Verse 4, Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He was more accurate and more truthful than he could have ever imagined. The leader's charges were bogus, and he knew it. He saw right through them. Jesus wasn't guilty of misleading anyone or or leading a rebellion against Caesar or so on. But not only that, Pilate's words remind us of a much deeper truth, that Jesus was innocent, period. He's innocent, period. He was not guilty of any criminal activity against man. But more than that, he was also not guilty of any criminal activity against God. He was blameless, sinless. He lived his entire life without ever sinning in thought or word or action. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. He says, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. This is really key, because if it wasn't for the perfect righteousness of Christ, there would be no hope for any one of us to ever be good. Most of us, many of us, probably see ourselves as generally good people. More good than bad, at least. But that simply isn't true. We've all sinned against God and against our fellow man in countless ways. Every day. If we were put on trial before God, we would be found guilty over and over and over again. We are hypocrites. We are slanderers and gossipers, blasphemers, adulterers, liars. We are prideful and lustful and lazy and greedy and idolatrous and self-centered and self-righteous. which is what makes God's mercy so marvelous. We'd have no hope on our own. But instead of judging us based on our sin, God chooses to give us Jesus' righteousness. 
If we accept His mercy, we are seen as perfectly good and holy ourselves, something we never earned, not because of how, how we have lived, but because of how Jesus lived. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. There was no guilt found in Him. A refrain that we will see repeatedly in this story as we continue. Luke really wants us to, to, get, to hammer this home to us. Well, the religious leaders were not dissuaded by Pilate's quick verdict. As I find no guilt in this man, verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, I think I know what's going on here. Okay? In a game of hockey, if a team is trailing by a goal or two as the clock winds down, as the game's about to end, what does the team that's losing do? They get urgent, right? They get desperate. And they seem to play much harder in the final few minutes of the game than they have for the rest of the game. This happened last night with the Leafs and the good side, right? <laughs> they pull the goalie, get the extra attacker. They try to throw everything they've got at the goalie. They try to keep control of the puck nonstop. And they can smell they're about to lose, right? And so they get urgent. They try anything. I think that's what's going on here. Something similar. The leaders sensed they were about to lose. If Pilate didn't agree with their charges, their whole plot would unravel. And Pilate had just decided he's innocent. Uh-oh. So they got urgent, started throwing everything they got at Caesar. Or at Pilate, sorry. I find no guilt in this man. Uh, but, 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 uh, um, well, he, he's stirring up trouble everywhere he goes. Look at verse 5. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Like, Pilate, you're not taking this seriously, seriously enough. This is a nationwide problem. He's, he's bad news. But Pilate heard this and he thinks, Galilee? Galilee? Why mention Galilee? Wait, is he Galilean? Look in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, speaking of Jesus, was a Galilean. Why would Pilate ask this question? It's because he sensed an opportunity. He sensed an opportunity to pass on the problem to someone else. Look in verse 7. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, that's Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. This would be like someone showing up today at a Supreme Court trial in Ottawa, a federal trial, and the judge finds out that this person hasn't been tried on a provincial level yet. He says, hey, you're not supposed to be here. Get out of here. So he sends him back to a lesser court to deal with. Pilate thought Jesus was innocent. He'd already given his verdict, but he could tell that he wasn't really going to satisfy the religious leaders with that. So he's like, I don't want to deal with this problem right now. And you know what? I don't need to deal with this problem right now. How convenient. Herod's in town right now. I'm going to send you there. Now, Herod was a puppet king under Pilate's authority. But he was responsible for Galilee to govern that area. Now, we've met this Herod before in Luke. This is not the Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Okay, this is that Herod's son. 
Herod Antipas, the one who had killed John the Baptist. We met him back in Luke 9 when he sought to see Jesus and his miracles, and then again in Luke 13 where he sought to kill Jesus. And there, we saw Jesus send this message back to Herod, a really powerful message. He said, listen, you can't stop me. I'm heading to Jerusalem to die, and there's nothing you or anyone else can do to hinder me. Little did Herod know that Jerusalem is where he'd finally get to meet Jesus. In verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. It's like a kid that finds out the circus is coming to town. He was curious about Jesus, fascinated by him. He'd heard about him. But, as we're going to see, he didn't take him seriously at all. He doesn't seem to have any intention to continue Jesus' trial here. He, he didn't want to get bogged down in all the legal proceedings. He was on holidays, after all. He's there for the Passover. He doesn't want to have to deal with work. He just wants to be entertained by this supposedly powerful miracle worker. Woe to us if we ever feel similar. Wanting Jesus to entertain us. Wanting him to make us happy. Or successful. Or popular. Make us happy, but not necessarily holy. Thinking that Jesus should just answer our prayers. Like we're entitled to them. Demanding that our worship services or preachers or sermons or songs entertain us. That God's word entertains us or that everything needs to cater to our preferences or be perfect or professional. And if they don't fit that, what we want, we're just going to go somewhere else where we can get entertained. Jesus is not all about us. Our lives are to be all about Him. He is never about entertaining us. He's about changing us. Rightfully so, Jesus wasn't about to be Herod's circus monkey. Herod wanted to see a sign done by Jesus, a miracle. Jesus gave him nothing. See verse 8, Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but Jesus made no answer. We don't know why Jesus told Herod nothing, but he certainly fulfilled the prophecy from Isaiah 53, right? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Meanwhile, other people were opening their mouths. The religious leaders were still standing around slandering him. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And then when Herod didn't get what he wanted, he joins in the parade of abuse says, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt 
and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So when Jesus refused to play along or perform tricks, Herod decided to use him for sport. One way or another, he'd have his fun with him. So he cruelly mocked him. In another aspect of the abuse that Jesus willingly went through to show love to us. Notice, though, that Herod as well, he didn't find Jesus guilty either. He just found him no fun. If Herod had paid heed to these leaders' accusations that were standing there accusing him, he could have had Jesus killed, like he had wanted to back in Luke 13. He had wanted to kill Jesus. Something had changed. He didn't want to do it anymore. So instead, he just tossed Jesus back to Pilate like he was a hot potato. Like, I'll have some fun with him, but I'm not going to kill an innocent man. Listen, he's obviously no threat to my throne. You deal with him. And verse 12 is interesting. It says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So, these two unbelieving rulers who had been in hostility found some common ground. They were of the same mind to not condemn Jesus to death. This whole story, from beginning to end, is full of irony. Things, things end up being the exact opposite of what you'd expect from the situation. That's irony. As we've clearly seen so far, in the midst of accusations of guilt, Jesus was found innocent. But here's the deeper irony of that. Jesus was actually guilty of some of these charges. No, he wasn't guilty of any of the leaders' charges, at least not the way they put them. But he was found innocent by Pilate and by Herod of being a king. And yet, he was a king. Jesus was found truly and perfectly innocent, even though he really was a king. Jesus had admitted as much back at the end of chapter 22 when he claimed to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would be king. And he even admitted as much to the face of Pilate when he was asked back in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate probably wasn't asking very seriously, but Jesus answered seriously. It is, as you say, you have said so. Yes, he was pleading guilty as charged. Even though his kingship was definitely different than any of them would have imagined. They weren't seeing things the same thing, same way he was. In John's description of Jesus before Pilate in his gospel, he records one of their conversations. When Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus wouldn't be an earthly king. At least not yet. But he still had a kingdom. Instead, he would rule over millions of people's hearts from his throne in heaven until the day that he does, in fact, return to earth to establish his eternal kingdom. Herod's mockery 
displayed yet another aspect of this cruel irony. Jesus was elaborately robed like a king would be, all dressed up, but mocked as the opposite. I have to ask you today, is he your king? Is he your king? Or does he, does he rightfully reign over your life? Or is he merely your advisor? Or your doctor, your teacher, your banker, your genie in a bottle? Do we listen to what he says and obey it? Or do we just like it and turn the other way? You can like as many pictures of pretty verses on Facebook as you want. It doesn't mean he's your king. When we call Jesus king, yet we don't let him reign over us, we mock him. And let me tell you, the king of kings and lord of lords will not be mocked forever. Here's the other ironic side of Jesus' innocent verdicts. In the midst of accusations of guilt, Jesus was found innocent, even though he really led a revolution. And he was found innocent of being a revolutionary, even though he was leading a revolution. Now, like I said earlier, the accusations that Jesus was misleading the nation against Rome were 100% completely untrue and unfounded. He had no ambitions to do that. However, he was leading a revolution against the world's ways that continues to this day. He was stirring people up, but not to rebel against human authority. He was stirring people up to counterintuitively surrender to heaven's authority. He was calling people to radically join his kingdom, no matter what the cost. He was calling people to rebel against their own sinful natures, to turn to God. It's a revolution. His revolution would spread like wildfire after he was resurrected from the dead. That provided huge power behind this revolution. And peaceful insurrections, we call them churches, would spring up in every city around the Roman Empire. Now at times, Jesus' revolution would be misunderstood as a threat to political peace or security. But true Christ followers don't attempt to fight or usurp the state. True Christ followers live as countercultural revolutionaries within the state. Remember, in the world, but not of the world. And as part of the church, we are called to be part of the continuing revolution. Not stirring up trouble, but stirring people up towards salvation in Jesus' name. Be revolutionary. Much like the prominent people in our story today, we all need to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. They kept passing him back and forth, trying to avoid dealing with him. The Jews thought Jesus was a liar. Right? Thought he was a total liar. Pilate thought Jesus must be a lunatic. Herod thought Jesus' power must have only been a legend. But who is he to you? 
Either he is one of those, or he is Lord of all. We can keep trying to push him away. We can try, keep trying to put things off, hope he goes away. But like Jesus returning to Pilate, he will always return. And he will force the issue. Is he the innocent son of God and son of man, or is he something else? We must decide. But we have to decide really carefully, and cautiously, for our souls depend on it. One day, we will all stand before God's throne. And he will judge us justly and righteously. And so I ask, will we have anything to say? Or will we just have empty excuses? See, Jesus was silent at his trials, so we'd have something to say at ours. His perfect Shed blood is our only defense. On that final day for all who believe in him, Jesus will be an advocate before the Father. Philip Ryken says, Through faith in Christ, when you at last appear before the throne of God, justly accused of all your sin, Jesus will plead the merits of his own royal and innocent righteousness. Having suffered for your sins all the way to the cross, he will speak up and tell his Father not to give you the verdict that you deserve, but the verdict that he deserves. Do you grasp how good this news is? Do you really grasp? This is our only hope of ever being good enough for God. This is our only hope for ever escaping hell. The, the truth that Jesus has saved us should radically affect every day of our lives. We need to daily fall on our knees before our King in worship and service and love. And if you haven't yet, you need to fall on your knees today forsaking your sin to follow Him. Won't you surrender? Won't you surrender to the King of Kings today? Pray that you would. He deserves our all, our everything. When Jesus was returned to Pilate, the governor called the assembly back together and he declared that his verdict remained unchanged. Look in verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Didn't find him guilty. Neither did Herod. Nothing deserving of death. See, underscoring, Jesus' perfect innocent. He is the perfectly innocent sufferer. You might wonder, well, if he wasn't guilty, why would Pilate punish him? As he said here in verse 16, I will therefore punish and then release him. Well, he thought 
that that would pacify the Jewish leaders. It would be enough for them. He was not okay killing an innocent man, but in order to keep the peace, he could punish Jesus, and, and that way they'd be kept happy. Little did he know how Jesus' wounds were actually what was bringing peace to the world. But what Pilate suggested in verse 16 did not pacify the religious leaders. Now, actually, that was close to their worst-case scenario. An absolute nightmare for them. Their credibility would be shot, Jesus' credibility would be soaring, and he'd be set free back on the streets to wreak havoc in their world. So, they grasped at their final straw. Look at verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Talk about sobering verses. This is a new low. The book of Luke, really, and the Bible... In these verses, we see the stunning reversal, strange reversal of what's happened up till now in this passage. The the fact was, Jesus was accused as guilty, but he was found to be innocent. Absolutely true. Therefore, Jesus should have absolutely been released. That's not what happened. No, instead, once again, Jesus received the diametric opposite of what he deserved. Oh, the irony. Point number two, in spite of an innocent verdict, Jesus was condemned as if he were guilty. In spite of an innocent verdict, Jesus was condemned as if he were guilty. Earlier, the leaders had falsely accused Jesus of stirring up people and causing riots. Now they're guilty of those exact charges themselves. They stir up the crowds. Now, this may have been a vastly different crowd than the one that shouted Hosanna days before likely was, but I think the contrast is still sobering. The city of Jerusalem has officially turned on Jesus. And in so doing, they seem to have lost all grip on their sanity asking for a convicted murderer and violent revolutionary to be released. See that in verse 18? They all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. This would be like a crowd of people going downtown to a courthouse today and begging and demanding for the immediate release of a proven guilty murderer and rapist. 
No one begs for people like this to be back out on the streets. Roaming free. There's no question, Barabbas was a bad man. He was everything that Jesus was not. He stands in stark contrast to him. This seems like a crazy request at first. However, it was a viable request at the time. See, Pilate had instituted this tradition. Every feast of the Passover in Jerusalem, that he allowed the Jews to ask for the release of one political prisoner every year. And he'd release them. Just free, it pardoned them. He, and it was just another way of maintaining peace in the region, keeping the populace happy. And the Jews realized here that Pilate was proposing to release Jesus as this year's prisoner. So they started to panic. No, that's not what we want. We don't want Jesus released. Oh, quickly, we need to ask for someone else, someone who is in prison already. We need to ask for them. Who can we ask? Oh, um... Barabbas! Yeah, Barabbas! We could ask for him. He's in prison. We'd rather have him on the loose than Jesus released. Did I mention insanity? Pilate was nothing if not persistent, but the crowd was just a little bit more persistent. Pilate definitely wanted to let Jesus go free. We saw that in verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The crowd continued their hellish chant, insistently demanding their way. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Can you hear them? Like a raucous crowd at a sporting event or a concert or a political rally. Just a thunderous, angry roar. Crucify! 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 No, they they didn't just want Jesus dead. They wanted the worst of the worst executions. Crucifixion. It's tragic. Now put yourself in Pilate's shoes here. He had quite the quandary on his hands. On the one hand, he could keep the peace in Jerusalem. He could do his job, in other words. Keep Jerusalem peaceful. He could satisfy the crowd's bloodthirstiness by condemning Jesus to death. But, if he did this, it would go against every fiber of his conscience. He was convinced that the Jews were up to no good. They were. And he was convinced that Jesus was totally innocent. He was. And if he released Jesus, didn't give in, he released Jesus, he would be doing the just and the right thing. Another part of his job. 
So he either had to violate his conscience and justice, or he had to risk revolt against Rome. Terrible decision. So in one last ditch effort to sway the crowd, verse 22, he said, third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Again, you see the emphasis on Jesus' innocence from all evil. But this did nothing to quell the mob. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And their voices prevailed. Pilate gave in. He caved. He let them have their way. Verse 24, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He had weighed the options, decided that a happy populace was more important than potentially incurring guilt from killing an innocent man. So he caved. Pilate decided their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison, that's Barabbas, for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Do you notice the disconnect between the verdict and the sentence? The verdict from those in authority was repeatedly not guilty. But the sentence was death. Verdict, not guilty. Sentence, death. I submit that no grosser miscarriage of justice has ever been seen. But there's something incredible about this story that we haven't seen yet. This is an awful account of bloodthirsty injustice. But there was something deeper going on beneath the surface. I believe we can see an incredible final implication from a surprising source here in the story. Here's the the last thing I want to leave us with today. So in spite of an innocent verdict, Jesus was condemned as if he were guilty, even though others were the guilty ones. Even though others were the guilty ones. There was plenty of guilt to go around in this situation. The Jews, Pilate, Herod, the crowd, yet the only innocent party here was condemned as guilty, even though others were guilty. I think this can be especially seen vividly in the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. There was a clear criminal in this story who had murdered others and therefore deserved to die. And there was a clear innocent party who was the last person to ever deserve to die. But the heart of this passage points us to the innocent being condemned as the guilty go free. You see that? I I never noticed this contrast before in the story, even though I've read it hundreds of times. Maybe I'm just oblivious and blind and everyone's seen this before, but I hadn't. I really want you to see this this morning as we end. We are Barabbas. 
We are Barabbas. Did you ever wonder why all four gospel writers tell us about Barabbas, this seemingly obscure criminal who was on death row, who got this get-out-of-jail-free card on Good Friday? Why do they tell us about him? All of them bring him up, out of the blue. It's because they want us to notice. The innocent one is condemned as the guilty one goes free. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. Through Jesus' whole ordeal of death, he was innocent and yet condemned, while we are the guilty ones who can go free forever. We are the rebellious, fallen people who are on eternal death row. If you're taking notes, write us in your notes, circle it, and point to this point. Okay, that's us. Jesus was condemned even though others were the guilty ones. That's us. Jesus was condemned so we don't have to be. It's a beautiful, unfathomable exchange. And that's the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. This reveals his amazing love and mercy for us. If we believe in him, we are given grace upon grace upon grace as we go free. As we come to this turning point, and Satan may have schemed, and Judas betrayed, and the Jews brought Jesus to trial, decided he must die. Pilate gave in. And as the final words of this passage tell us, he delivered Jesus over to their will. The people thought that their will was being done as Jesus was delivered up to be crucified. But in reality, this was all part of God's revolutionary kingdom plan. This was God's will, and Jesus' will, and Jesus willingly went to die for those who wanted him dead. And this is love. Amazing, incomprehensible love. Heavenly Father, There are no words to express how deeply indebted we are to you. That you would send your son to be beaten and mocked and killed on our behalf so that we could go free. All we can say is thank you. May we believe in you. May we follow you with all of our hearts, with all of our lives. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.